This is the Eco Business Podcast. I'm Liang Li. A global report on the impacts of climate change just landed a while back. Today, I'm chatting with three contributing scientists from Southeast Asia on their experiences, views, and hopes for the future. The report by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change details what could soon be irreversible changes to nature and human systems. For Southeast Asia, that means more flooding, sea level rise, and extreme rainfall for the 680 million people who call the region home. The report also emphasizes repeatedly that the window of opportunity to prepare ourselves is closing fast. Joining me on this podcast are Associate Professor of Science, Technology and Society, Winston Chow from the Singapore Management University, Dr. Zelina Ibrahim from the Faculty of Forestry and Environment in University Putra, Malaysia, and Dr. Rodel Lasco, Executive Director of the Oscar M. Lopez Center, a climate research center in the Philippines. Thank you all for joining. To start, maybe each of you could share what your role was in the IPCC report. Prof Chow, would you like to start? Okay, hi. Uh, thanks for inviting me onto this podcast. Uh, I was a lead author in Chapter 6 for uh, this assessment report that's on the cities, settlements, and key infrastructure. Uh, I was also lead for the cross-chapter paper on uh, cities and settlements by the sea. So urban focus in those two cross-chapter papers, which I think uh, came up rather clearly uh, in, the, in the overall report. How about you, uh, Dr. Lasko? Yeah, well, hi, and uh, again, glad to be here. I, uh, I was the coordinating lead author of Chapter 5, Food, Fiber, and Ecosystem Products. Uh, so there were three of us. And I was, and I was also uh, one of the drafting authors of the Summary for Policymakers. Uh, and for Dr. Ibrahim? Yeah, hi. Um, I was a coordinating lead author of Chapter 16, Key Risks Across Sectors and Regions. And this was together with two other people, Brian O'Neill from the US and Martin Van Aals from the Netherlands. And similarly with uh, to Rodel, I was also one of the drafting authors for the Summary for Policymakers and the Technical Summary. So thank you for inviting me for this podcast. Awesome. If I could just stay with you, uh, Dr. Ibrahim, let's move on to this uh, to the first question. What are the most important findings for Southeast Asia, you know, from your parts of the report? And you know, in a sense, how dire is the picture for the region now? Um, well, for my chapter, we were looking at the key risks. Well, when we're looking at Southeast Asia, I think uh, some of the things to be concerned about are the fact that we have uh, large populations who may be vulnerable or marginalized. Um, a lot of us are developing nations or coming to the, you know, the forefront of being a developed nation. Even if you're a developed nation, you're going to face some of this risk. For example, Singapore with uh, sea level rise, coastal impacts. Um, and we should also remember also that even though we might be some parts of the population are um, less vulnerable, there will be other groups that will be much more vulnerable. And we need to be concerned about um, how... Um, climate change hazards and impacts will will affect them. The the other issue that is of concern comes from the working group one report, which is related to other extremes. And especially for Southeast Asia, some of the projected results are some of them are a bit uneven, but the ones that I've been concerned about is the 
increase in heavy rainfall, especially towards the end of the century, where some of the, some of the projections are indicating that uh, a one in 100 year rainfall event, which would be maybe only occur or not occur in your lifetime, might occur once in 10 years in your lifetime. So maybe you might experience it six times. So that's something very concerning, especially as we start to urbanize, we start to see, I mean, Malaysia uh, recently, you know, had these very unexpected, very he uh, heavy uh, rainfall and floods. Yeah, definitely. Um, how about you, uh, Dr. Lasko? Well, for our chapter, chapter five, which is uh, food, one of the important findings is that uh, at three degrees centigrade warming, as you know, the target of the Paris Agreement is not more than two degrees, uh, preferably 1.5 degrees centigrade warming. But at three degrees warming, the food supply will be uh, reduced and food prices, crop prices may increase by 5% because of reduced labor capacity. Uh, labor capacity may be reduced by up to half with, uh, with a warming planet, and that will translate into higher crop prices. And of course, uh, this will undermine food availability, access, livelihoods, in short, food security could be at risk uh, at this temperature. So that's one of, of the important findings uh, from our chapter uh, that relates to Southeast Asia. Definitely a concern, especially since Southeast Asia is still considered one of the world's kind of food baskets. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, Prof. Winston Chow? Okay, uh, I think there were two or three key findings I can summarize from the urban aspects of the report. Uh, one is uh, to follow up on what Zelina said, cities are key uh, hotspots for uh, risks, especially in Southeast Asia. Uh, currently, we are at about 280 million um, people living in a lot of urban, urban areas in Southeast Asia. It should effectively double to about 550 million by the middle of the century. So you're going to get a concentration of people, infrastructure and other resources that will be at risk to all the uh, extreme rainfall, uh, sea level rise, severe storms, especially if you're based in you know, Manila or in Vietnam to, to more frequent and intense tropical cyclones. Uh, we've also found that adaptation to these sort of risks, um, there is a gap in terms of what can be achieved to minimize these risks. Uh, there's a lot of focus in terms of physical infrastructure in place, uh, but we want to point out uh, in our assessments that uh, both nature-based solutions as well as good policy social planning uh, you know, issues within cities can help to reduce that gap substantially. So you'll take care of both the sort of direct risks from climate-driven uh, hazards as well as those uh, compounded and cascading risks relating to food insecurities that Rodel was talking about, which are also very important in Southeast Asia. Um, the other thing we want to point out is that uh, potential adaptation slash resilient solutions to the risks that we are focusing on can also take place successfully in Southeast Asia. We've got a good case study in chapter six looking into Samarang in Indonesia, where uh, 
enabling policies, inclusive, uh, inclusive policy development with not just um, transnational, uh, transnational actors, but also local government with indigenous populations, with marginalized populations, can help to increase the adaptation um, effectiveness uh, to sea level rise or to flood risks that can happen in that city. So while cities are a problem, they are also places where solutions to uh, that enable climate resilient development can take place. I guess I, I want to kind of turn the lens back to you, the, the scientist who worked on the report. So my next question is, you know, um, what, what would you say was the toughest part of your work in the report? And, you know, how much sacrifices did you have to make? Well, uh, as uh, you know, we all know, uh, IPCC work is voluntary. There is no uh, compensation for it. So you really sacrifice a lot of your time uh, to do this. And uh, because of the pandemic, the sacrifice was probably more severe. I've been part of AR four, five, now six. And uh, so because of the pandemic, we cannot meet face to face. There was a lot of time differences and you have to wake up uh, all sorts of time just to, to uh, attend meetings. And uh, of course, everything is via Zoom. And so without these face to face meetings, uh, I think uh, the work was uh, a bit harder compared to before. And uh, plus you couple that with family and office concerns, you know, you're thinking about your, your kids, your, your spouse. And uh, if you're heading, uh, say, in the university or in a center like ours, we think also of the welfare of our staff. And so all of these things happening at the same time. So uh, for me, that was really the toughest, uh, trying to work in this uh, context of the pandemic, uh, Leon. Sure, and Dr. Lasko, I have one more question for you. You just mentioned that you worked on AR4, AR5, and this year AR6. I mean, just wondering for any scientists who may be listening to this podcast who want to get get involved in future reports, any advice for them? Well, they should be ready to give two or three years of their lives uh, to uh, doing this work. it's uh, relentless, it's practically nonstop. Uh, and uh, over the years, I, I see that because there's so much literature to review and there's so much focus by the world's media, by policymakers. So it's more intense, becoming more intense. And therefore, uh, well, such, uh, let's say, some of the young scientists listening to us should uh, really be ready to commit and uh, there's really little room for error or slacking uh, slacking or dropping out. They have to be really engaged from day one and hit the ground running. Yeah, I think similar to Rodell, as he mentioned, it's voluntary. And I know when you mentioned about family, you know, I have feelings of guilt when I was involved in meetings, which is like continuous. We have sessions, which are continuous sessions. Uh, and I know it's like helping out with my aunt who is not very well. And when I'm in the meetings and I forget, oh, you know, I, I need to sit down and talk with her or something. So, yeah, after some of the meetings, I was thinking, oh, my gosh, you know, I'm, I'm not spending the time. As I was mentioning, your, your family also, you know, how um, giving up some of that time. So there is some some for me, there was some some feelings of guilt when I was like spending so much time online talking with people. And of course, it's, it's night night um, calls. Um, because there are so many authors across, like from, from my chapter, they're like 13 hour time zones. So, you know, you, you have to balance out and, and um, have a time which may not be so convenient for you in order to make it more convenient for others. And, and just wondering, how do you decide on which time zone you set your meetings at? 
Well, I know in, in some of the sessions, they had tried to have, you know, over, overlapping time zones. I know I could make um, the Eastern time zone as well as the Europe time zone, but there were people like in, in America waking up maybe at four o'clock and some people were talking until two o'clock in the morning. And in the beginning, I must say, I tried to attend every meeting. So some ended up sleeping maybe three o'clock in the morning. But then the end, I was like, oh my gosh, I can't keep doing this. It was very, very tiring, you know. And I think you have to have a lot of energy. So young scientists, yes, this is the type of work I need. You're full of enthusiasm. And, you know, this is really a great opportunity. You're working with so many people who give a lot of their time you know, voluntarily, yes, I, I would definitely, I would encourage young scientists to, to come and look at what the IPCC process is. And if there's a call coming in at, you know, the, your, your national level to, to volunteer, there, there are, um, you can look at the report and see who's in the report, see who's coming in from your country and approach them how, you know, how to participate. And you can begin to participate, not just by writing, but even by commenting because the, the reports are then made available for to for people to comment and um, as a young scientist you might have a lot of new ideas to contribute a new uh, new research that you're doing prof chow was it the same experience for you oh my goodness uh, yeah i recall the the time zone issues i think affected all of us we are we are in a part of the world that neither is here nor there given that uh, our, our technical support unit was based in Germany so uh, a lot of our meetings were in the evening and overnight uh, I had memorable calls uh, at three o'clock in the morning as well I remember chairing a session which I think is common for all of us some really some sacrifices in terms of sleep was was made uh yeah time away from family uh time away from doing work that uh, you really should be doing in your day job but then you realize that uh, you know and then plus the fact that what uh, Rodel and Zelina have pointed out um we are doing this for free <laughs> it's pro bono work effectively uh the joke is uh, I think for our chapter, I'm supposed to take charge of uh, designing a T-shirt that says that, you know, remember, we are doing this for free. And then we were supposed to pass it to each other uh, during the approval plenary. But because of COVID, um, we can't meet face to face. And that's one of the biggest, um, I guess, regrets of this particular assessment cycle. Uh, yeah, it was difficult. I, I won't lie. I'm, I was very lucky that my current job, uh, my university was extremely supportive that, uh, oh, look, we've got an IPCC author here. Uh, do take time, you know, well, we understand, we understand the gravity and the importance of this report. So uh, they were supportive in when I, when I needed time away from, you know, teaching or, or research to, to try and get stuff done. Uh, one of the problems I think several of my colleagues have faced is that their own home institutions aren't as supportive as mine. And that is uh, an issue that I think uh, a lot of, um, you know, if, if you want to commit to this, uh, you have to make sure that your institution or your day job doesn't, <laughs> you know, doesn't view uh, the IPCC as a burden instead of something that is quite important, as I think uh, our report is. Uh, and also to follow up on, on Zelina's point, um, I think uh, encouraging young scientists is good. <laughs> Uh, this was my first round. Uh, I was a previously, you know, expert reviewer of AR5 for some of the reports and drafts. 
uh, this time round, um, it, it really was an eye-opener, the, the amount of effort, the amount of time involved in this. But what made it easy was the dedication of you know, people like Rodell, like Zelina, like all of our colleagues who realized that, yes, we are doing this for free, but we realized how bloody important this report is. So uh, that, that shared commitment, I think, did, resulted in a, a lot of camaraderie and a lot of very, you know, uh, the, the burden was shared very well, I guess. We were lucky to have colleagues who, who realized that this is important stuff. So it made the process uh, somewhat less painful as I think um, other processes would be if we really committed the same amount of time to this. Awesome. Let's move on to the next question on the acceptance of the summary for policymakers. That process went into extra time. I think they took an extra one or two days for it to come out. So I'm just wondering, you know, what are some of the more contentious discussions that took place that involved parts of the work you worked on that, that resulted in kind of this long drawn out process? I think that the, the word approval session is the one that, you know, um, explains what it is about and why it takes such a long time. The, um, the approval session means that delegates from um, all the the IPCC members would look at the text word by word. Uh, and especially, I think some of the concerns is also how words translate into different languages when they want to translate into their languages. The other thing is the concern by uh, different uh, countries in different regions that their concerns are adequately mentioned and highlighted within the report. So we might have mentioned it, but they feel that it's not strong enough or the wording doesn't actually portray their concerns. So we have to look at the phrasing and rewording. They will make suggestions and uh, the, the author teams, the scientists will have to see whether this wording is consistent with the, um, the, the data and the information, the scientific assessment, the evidence. The other things that I worked also on a figure, delivering a figure in the, SP, in the summary for policymakers. So even how the figures are portrayed to, to clarify any misunderstanding. So for example, for us as scientists, we may be very clear about what it means, but as the policymaker may read it and say, I don't really understand this word, so we have to rephrase it. Or they have some concerns to say, this doesn't highlight why something is not there. Can you explain? So we need to include that in the figure. So it comes to a few different iterations, and especially since we are spread out over like 24 hours of time zones. That takes time. So I think that's why the approval process went in a little bit longer. Uh, Zelina is right. Uh, because of the pandemic and the Zoom, it took like more than 10 days, almost two weeks of discussion. And uh, part of the reason is this is supposed to be a co-production or co-creation. Uh, scientists co-creating and co-producing the document with policymakers. This is one of the strengths of the IPCC process, this co-creation and co-production. But at the same time, it brings with it its own challenges, as, as you noted. And for example, uh, I remember a lot of debate on a figure, one of the figures, without divulging the details, but uh, uh, really a lot of debate. And eventually that figure, I think, was dropped totally after hours of, uh, of discussion and and. Not only that, uh, definition of terms like uh, agroecology, agroecology practice, uh, you know, and, and this took time and uh, we have to define and sometimes even include footnotes uh, just to be clear what the term means. So all of these things uh, come into play and uh, well, in the end, uh, it's approved uh, and therefore uh, we succeeded in co-producing and co-creating a document 
And again, this is one of the reasons why the IPCC is one of the, uh, probably the, uh, the, the best example of how scientists can work with policymakers at the global scale. And it seems like for that figure, we'll never know what the figure is. Yeah, we can't reveal the figure details, I'm afraid. What, what happens in plenary stays in plenary. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, for, for the last, uh, the, the approval process, I took off my author hat and put on my government delegate hat. So I attended that uh, the, the sessions throughout and, and saw, saw the difficulties that the, the SPM approval process takes. Uh, Rodell is right. The, the sort of um, con what you might view as contentious actually has a point to it because the text is something that 195 or counting 197 nations agree upon. Uh, it is formulated through very um, concerted efforts to reach consensus. And I think, I think that's the point there, that consensus is critical uh, between balancing what we as scientists would consider as appropriate language versus what policymakers and governments think is much more appropriate for them. So we, we find ways to compromise in that sense. And in that spirit of compromise, that's how you develop that proposal or that, that document. And this document is important because it's going to be referred to in a lot of UNFCCC discussions, it will be referred to immensely in COP27 and others down the road. Uh, there is some language that in this, you know, in this SPM, which I think we are very happy to see, language pertaining to inclusivity and other important aspects that have been mentioned in the literature for the past five years that has only now gotten into that SPM document. So it's very, I mean, it's, it's, it was a lot of pain. Um, I could see the, the, the frustrations from both you know, the authors especially and also from some policymakers as well. Uh, but the extra time that it took, um, despite the complications of meeting on Zoom, which I still think is a very clunky way to agree to these sort of discussions, uh, is worth it in the end. And, and if I might just add on a question, I mean, this might seem a bit naughty, but I'm just wondering, I know you can't name names, but I'll even go to the specifics of what's discussed but I'm just wondering whether there were any themes or examples you can give on what had more discussion than you had anticipated. Uh, Yang Lei, do you know what's the GLOMA response? It's oh. the, I can neither confirm nor deny anything that you said. So <laughs> I, I think I'll speak on behalf of Selena and Vodell and say, I can neither confirm or deny anything that's said there. Uh, please correct me if I'm wrong, both of you, if you think that that's more, if there's a more appropriate answer. Uh, I think a lot of the issues, are probably the issues would have been already been brought up before in other discussions related to climate change and, and the impacts, mitigation, adaptation. So I, I don't think there were things which were unexpected. And as scientists, sometimes we, we think uh, the way we express our ourselves may not be so clear to policymakers. So I think that's the other thing we also have to learn to how to present it in a way which is easy to understand and which could lead to action. So I, I think it's also a learning process for us scientists. How do you phrase it so that policymakers can take it up and, and bring something you know, back um, for, for, their, for their implementation or action or what's the next step for them? Gotcha. All right, then, uh, I mean, <laughs> sorry for this diversion. Let me just move on to the next question then. Uh, it is kind of a more of a taking a bird's eye view of the process of what IPCC is trying to do. 
what would you say is the value of the latest risks and adaptation report, given that you know it's already into the sixth edition? And largely, I mean, from, from what I've read, there, there largely haven't been any big change in direction of the narrative of what we need to do to fight climate change, to protect ourselves against climate change. Yeah, well, sort of having observed the arc of the reporting from the early 90s up to now, uh, it's quite, uh, yeah, you're right, a long time. It's the sixth assessment. But uh, what I see is that hopefully this will add one more nail in the coffin of skepticism out there. Uh, we cannot deny that uh, in some parts of the world, we won't mention the region anymore, but in some parts of, uh, of the world, let's just say not in Asia, but uh, in other continents, there are still pockets of skepticism. And hopefully this uh, very strong message, the uh, strong evidence presented in this report uh, really adds uh, more and more uh, uh, argument and really hopefully the final nail in the coffin for most of the skepticism uh, out there, um, if, uh, if you know if there are still people who, who doubt. And uh, in this report, uh, I like especially the emphasis on climate resilient development. Uh, unlike before, the emphasis was really uh, at, in the early days, uh, just on climate change per se, their, uh, mitigation, adaptation. But now it's more, well, contextualized, uh, looking at the whole uh, development agenda. And so I think this is one uh, very, uh, very good contribution. And also the other thing is the warning of the report that there's a window for action, but that window is fast closing. Uh, within the next decade, it will close. So even though the basic theme of the message is the same, but now there are stronger arguments and the call for action is much stronger uh, here as well. And as I mentioned, I think by Winston and Selena, this emphasis on adaptation, that there are solutions out there. So it's not all doom and gloom. Uh, there's uh, also some light uh, in the horizon if we act within the next 10 years. So uh, to me, it's still worth it, again, doing uh, the assessment. Yeah. Uh, Prof. Chow, I see you laughing a lot. <laughs> during what? Uh, I, I'm laughing because I think I'll disagree with you that uh, there's no big change in the narrative direction uh, in AR6. I think there is. Um, in, the, in my chapters and also I think in the tech summary and also in the summary for policymakers, there's also a mention towards financing adaptation, enabling adaptation, and that finance element uh, is uh, sort of like a clarion call for the private sector to join in with what governments plan to do. Um, that attention has, uh, I mean, that, 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 that focus there on uh, bringing adaptation up to a level where we can then push forward this narrative of climate resilient development, which also includes you know, um, emissions reductions through mitigation that uh, the Working Group 3 report in April will release, uh, that we'll, we'll focus on when it's released in April. Uh, that has garnered a lot of um, eye, eyeballs uh, from the private sector. I know a lot of uh, people who are involved in green investments, green development, see this, um, this focus as a very important part of uh, enabling action. Uh, it's part of, the, part of the broader theme that I think has happened since um, Paris and since the SR 1.5, which I think stimulated a lot of interest globally, not just from governments, but from civil society and also from the private sector worldwide. And especially so in Southeast Asia, 
when uh, well, I mean a lot of assets are going to be exposed, a lot of companies, conglomerates, they are thinking, okay, if this is the mess that we're in, what's the sort of things we can do that can together with with um, the public sector, together with people and communities, in order to uh, get out of this mess via the idea of climate resilient development. Uh, I see the the reports uh, aims. That broadening out and, and interesting a larger audience beyond governments as a very good thing uh, in the years to come, especially when, as Rodel points out, we've only got a very short uh, window of opportunity to get things done. I think there's um, now a greater realization with uh, greater evidence of what might be and that, yes, we need to take action really very quickly. What we're seeing is that at the moment, the level of adaptation globally is still at a very low level. There may be pockets where adaptation is becoming more innovative, but it's generally in the global level still at a low level. That means there is a great opportunity to, uh, to escalate the efforts that we're making. But as Winston pointed out, the financing, the adaptation gap in financing is still very great. And especially for developing countries, you know, the, the report very clearly points out how, how very little of the financing money is going to um, developing countries and, and also highlighting the type of action, the type of uh, adaptation actions that are being taken. In, in, the, in our final two chapters, um, uh, looking at how to make decisions for adaptation actions, um, they're clearly uh, looking at the feasibility assessment, what, what are components uh, that would make adaptation feasible, what type of adaptation actions uh, could be taken, you know, so suggesting what could be taken. Of course, they have to be adapted to the local context. But then also the link is how this can also have co-benefits for the SDGs, as well as co-benefits uh, across society in, in development contexts, you know, reducing vulnerability and exposure. So the tools are there inside the report uh, for, for governments to use. I think businesses really have to come on board because it will affect how they can survive, their survival, their sustainability. Yeah. And, and I really hope that the stakeholders will listen to you on this point, uh, Dr. Ibrahim. But like you said, it, it kind of linked nicely into my next question. I know you touched a bit on it already, but let me just ask it again, see whether you have anything to add. Basically, now that the report is out, how are you feeling now? And you know, what's your hope for the future? Um, yeah, well, I think what, some of the things is that um, coming away from that report is, is um, looking at the research gaps, some of the research gaps which have been identified. And, and I think each of the reports then highlights where research needs to take place. And, and this research would, would really need to be done within the next sort of five years in order to provide uh, evidence and input into the next cycle. Um, I hope there's a greater awareness of the need for action. I know insurance companies are really concerned because they have um, to deal with, you know, claims related to um, weather events. Um, and I hope that, that this report helps uh, governments in, in uh, dis making decisions um, because there's better information available. And I hope that for in the next cycle, we better evidence on effectiveness of adaptation action because that's one of the, the gaps that has been identified is that we're seeing a lot of actions but because of the time scale, you know, being taken, we need a longer period of time to see how these adaptations are, are taking, um, are becoming effective. Some of these adaptation actions are resulting in, um, well, we'll say maladaptation, maladjustments. 
we take an action which we think will solve a problem, but it has some other effects which are unanticipated or unintended, which which make, makes things worse. So we now realize that there are because because of the complex and cascading nature of some of these uh, recent impacts, we have to look at the whole system. It's not just at government level. Business is now becoming important by the individual in society and their participation in adaptation becomes very important. Uh, uh, to answer your question, what do I feel after the report has been published? Uh, relief for one. Uh, yes, um, Zelina's right. The, the beauty of um, look, working in this uh, in, in the IPCC process is that you see where the... You, you have the chance to set a research agenda and there's some things that I think... Um, myself I've been working on in Singapore and beyond to try and address that for the next assessment report cycle uh, AR7 uh, my uh, well, well, well we'll see how that goes uh, but right now it's back to being my usual you know uh, uh, my usual research stuff for looking into urban climate and urban heat here in Singapore and beyond um, but yeah that's 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 the thing that I plan to do now with, with an eye for looking towards the future and other future assessments. Awesome. And yeah, Dr. Lasko, do you want to kind of have the last word on this? Well, just echoing uh, what my co-author said, uh, I feel relieved but satisfied that finally it's over. And my, my hope policymakers uh, all over the world will really take notice and will really act based on the findings of the report. And again, just like my co-authors, I, I really hope that there will be more science and scientists from Southeast Asia that will be part of the next uh, cycle of the IPCC report. This podcast was hosted by EcoBusiness, Asia's leading media company serving the region's sustainability community. Join the conversation by visiting eco-business.com. Follow us on social media or subscribe to our newsletter. Thank you for listening.